want to stop and we want to acknowledge that you are the sovereign king over all things and that you have placed everything, all authority into the hands of your son. And right now he reigns at your right hand and that in his hand are the hearts of kings, presidents, congresswomen and men. Lord, we know that our president is there by your ordained will that ultimately it was your choice that put him there. And so we ask that you would uphold him in your strength and that you would guide his heart to protect the innocent, the unborn. The Lord, he would administer justice in our land and he would lead us in a way of righteousness. And we pray for those who support him, that you would grant them wisdom from on high and that you would enable us as a country to repent of the areas of sin and of selfishness and idolatry. And Lord, you would restore what has been fallen. We also, Lord, pray for our own community and ask that you would do your work of comforting those who have lost loved ones and for those who still do not know the outcome of of the body that was found yesterday. We just ask for your mercy and grace. Lord, we pray for Fairfield and know that there are many dark pockets in in our community of crime and and drugs. Um, And then there's spiritual darkness everywhere. And we just ask, Lord, in your mercy that you would continue to revive and renew your church, knowing that we have in our hearts and in our hands the gospel, the living gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that changes people from the inside out. And so we pray that you would grant us courage, that you would enable us, as David prayed in Psalm 144, to have our hands trained for war and our fingers for battle. Not physical battle against flesh and blood, Lord, but against principalities and powers that blind the eyes of those so that they cannot see the gospel of truth or the love that you showed to us on the cross. And so, Lord, we just offer to you our, ourselves, ask that you would be at work in your, in, in your church, reviving, renewing. We look to you as our king. We want to trust that you reign over all things, that not a sparrow falls to the ground anywhere on planet Earth apart from your will. And though we don't understand your will many times and things may seem confusing and off track, they are exactly where you want them to be. And we know that one day you will bring all things to a perfect and righteous resolution. And we look in hope to that promise. Now we pray that you would take your word press it into our hearts, change, transform, and form us into the people that you desire us to be. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Janie. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at one more verse this morning as we continue a series on the central DNA of the church, and that's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. 16. Let me enter into this, uh, this time by telling you a little bit about what the Lord is doing in, in my life. Um, in one sense, so that you can understand that your pastor is human, but also so that you understand how important what I believe and what we believe is important to my soul. One of the things that the Lord has been teaching me over the last three or four years is that despite how I may perceive myself, I'm a rather controlling person. And my wife, if she was here, she'd say, you preach it, brother. (laughs) 
Um, in fact, this last Thursday, I sat down with John Espino, a, a friend of mine from church, and we were just sharing what God's doing in our life. And I told him, I said, man, I, I never realized I had so many control issues until the last couple of years. And because um, I used to think of myself as a, as a rather easygoing, kind of roll with the punches kind of person. And I suppose that's true when it comes to things I don't care about, you know, like the color of carpets. I, I really don't care unless it's pink or something like that. I, I really don't care. The paint on the walls, my wife can pick whatever she wants. Um, the rust spot on the back of my Bronco, I don't really care that much about. So I'm not trying to finagle people to <laughs> get and fix it. Uh, or, or a host of other things I just don't really care that much about. And so therefore, I'm not all that controlling about those things. But there are things that are, are really important to me. And I find that I oftentimes want to exert influence and effort to make things go in a particular direction. And that's not entirely wrong, provided I, I don't try to control the outcome. Um, and it's interesting for me is that oftentimes those things that I think should happen, I can cite chapter and verse for. In other words, I, I have in my mind what the Bible teaches should be true of marriage, that it should persevere how a husband should be towards his wife, or how relationship should be restored, or how the church should reach out or impact the community. I can have these in images in my mind, and I can cite chapter and verse. But oftentimes when I don't see it going in a particular direction, as I, as I see it or understand it taking shape based upon the scripture, then I find myself easily frustrated, and I kind of become a, a bit of an angry elf, you know? And, um, and I, I easily get cynical and aggravated. And it seems that the Lord in the last three, four years has put, in, put certain circumstances and issues in my life where I have exerted the influence and the effort, and I find that I can't change things. That for all of my pressuring others or people or parties, that I find myself at the end of the day helpless. And frustration for me is a, is a, is a t true sign that, that I have taken control. Um, and I think for many of us it is a, a, a fruit of our pride-driven desire to control things and outcomes. The question is, what do, what do I do in those times when I know, at least I can read that my heart's that way now, couldn't always, what do you do in those times when you find yourself, okay, I, I, I'm exerting influence, Lord, you've asked me to say this, but people aren't responding, and, and it's kind of ironic. I have a hard time controlling my own self, much less other people. But what do you do in those times? Well, as I was sharing with my brother on Thursday morning, I said, you know, there's this one thing that helps me more than anything else, and that is to recite, remember, meditate, and pray that the Spirit uses texts from scripture in this case and i've been quoting this one all week to myself and to other people psalm 103 rings like a little bell in my mind when i want to exert control and that is and i don't think it's a psalm of david but the psalmist writes he says the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all and I pray over that verse, and remember, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And taking that verse to heart and praying that the Spirit of God, that DNA too, will take and insert it into my heart, does something to me. Of recognizing, okay, Lord, <laughs> it's your throne that's there, and you're in charge, not me. And that all you ask me to do really is 
by the grace you provide to be faithful and leave the outcome to you. And taking that word and, if you will, preaching that word to myself from Scripture um, allows my heart to rest in the fact that he's got it covered. And then I find my soul um, once again in a healthy place. But that word from Scripture, as God is my witness, is more important to me than even the encouragement of a friend, as good as that is, or the comfort of a relationship or some mode of escape. That it does more for my soul to correct me and to lift my soul back into a place it should be, namely worshiping and trusting the Lord, than anything else. And that's the basic topic or subject of this particular message is the importance of the Word of God. It's not about control issues or my control issues. It's just simply to say that the Word of God does make a very tangible and powerful impact on the life of people. And as an aside, the more I get to know people, the more I realize all of us have control issues. You just look at the things you care most about and where your frustrations lie, and you'll find where your control issues are. But the point of this is to, to reestablish as one of the main core DNA of the church through all of time has been and should be the centrality of the scriptures of the word of God. Now, we've looked at, at two so far, and the first one was that the church is to be a place that exalts and glories in Christ, that delights in him and declares him. The second one, as we saw last week, is the church is to depend in every way, shape, and form, in every activity, circumstance, or ministry upon the Spirit wholly. And now we come to a third one that emerges in Scripture as all-important, namely the role of the Word. Now, the Word of God elevates the Word of God. We find, and most of you are going to recall this, we find that the Word of God began everything, the universe as we know it, Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. We know that the word of God carries and sustains every life and every planet and every solar system and galaxy. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And that the word of God will bring all that we know to its appointed end, Revelation 19 and John 5. So it begins, it sustains, and it will end all things. That's what God's word does. That it regenerates the heart, it forms the church, and it grows the church. And word, the word was so important that it became flesh and dwelt among us. So within the purview and so, scope of Scripture, the Word is highly important and has always been to God's people, so much so that David could write, and this stopped me dead in my tracks as I was thinking through and meditating on Psalm 138, where he says, and this is pretty amazing, when he says that you have exalted, talking to the Lord, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's Psalm 138, verse 2. David sees that God has exalted to a place coordinate with his own name, his word. Not because his word is worthy of that place in and of itself, but because it's his word. And he goes on later in that psalm to say that the kings of the earth, all the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, for they have heard the words of your mouth. Sees a time in which all of the rulers of the world will give thanks to the Lord because they have heard his word. The word has been so formative and foundational to both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith that both have been labeled people of the book. 
that's been true of the Jewish faith as well as the, the Christian faith. And, of course, echoed and reemphasized by Jesus himself, the Son of God, the God-man who said that it's not good for man to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word of God, according to the word of God, begins, sustains, and ends all things, and it is to be lived by God's people every word properly understood. So it's our aim this morning to Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 to remind us to renew a commitment to the centrality and importance of the scripture in the life of the church. And I thought and we thought as we were looking through um, various texts that talk about how important the word of God is to the church that Colossians 3 verse 16 would be perfect. So here's what Colossians 3, verse 16 says. Paul, writing to the ancient church of Colossae, said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now the thrust of this entire letter to this church that lived from 2,000 years ago in what is now modern-day Turkey. The thrust of the letter is to keep God's people centered in the sufficiency of Jesus. That's reiterated throughout the letter, that they are in danger of swerving to have something or, or to chase after something in addition to Christ. And Paul brings them back and says, no, he is sufficient. That's, remember, DNA number one. For everything. So stay centered on him. You will only grow as you stay connected to him. That's the thrust of the letter. And one of the primary ways to stay centered on and connected to him, I think it's right here in chapter 3, verse 16. The word. Now this verse breaks into two pieces, I think, quite neatly. It shows us what we're to do with the word and how we're to do it. What we're to do with the word and how we're to do it. What we're to do with the word is the first part of the verse, and how we're to do it is the last part. What we're to do with it as a church body and as individuals is we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now, he could have used a lot of different words, but he used the word dwell in. He could have said, Let the word be a lamp unto your feet, which is a way of thinking about the word as outside of the church shining. Or maybe it should guide or direct you, which is kind of like a a signpost directing you. But he doesn't. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's a word that's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And every time but two, this one and one other time, It refers to the dynamic, active indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit of God lives and is active in us and as He forms us, that's the same basic way in which the Word is to indwell us. It is a a word that that has to do with moving into an apartment or a house to make one's residence or one's home somewhere. In other words, he's instructing the church, instructing us that we as a community of believers have to make a home for the word, to live and dwell as a living thing, that it is to live here, not just take up 
gigabytes of space in our brain, but to live. That's what he's saying. Let the word of Christ dwell in your midst. You know what happens when something moves in or someone moves in to a dwelling, dwells in an apartment or a house? You begin to make it your own. You know, you go into your apartment or your brand new house and, and you throw paint on the walls if you have the freedom to do that. Paint that reflects your tastes and colors that you like. You move in your furniture that you like, you feel comfortable in, or that's all you have. You put up pictures of your family and your dog so that it becomes your own. You put your food in the refrigerator and, 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 and so forth. You, everything starts to smell like your perfume or your cologne or the stuff smells like clothes smell like your soap. It, that is, it becomes your own. It begins to reflect you. You form that residence into something that reflects who you are. It reminds me of a, of a couple that my wife and I met when we were in seminary some 16 or 17 years ago. They had just gotten married, and they'd moved into campus housing. <laughs> they invited us over for dinner. And we walked in, and there was an immediate clash of aesthetic decoration. There was only one room. It was the living room kitchen. And walked in, and I kid you not, on the wall was a poster of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, with Harrison Ford with his whip. And I looked over, and I was thinking to myself, my wife would never let me hang a poster that looks like it belonged in a dorm room on the wall of our living room. Um, and I looked over on a different wall, and there were two or three posters of Clint Eastwood from the covers of his old spaghetti western movies. You remember? Like Good, Bad, and the Ugly. You guys haven't seen the Good, Bad, and the Ugly? <laughs> and I was just looking at that and, and thinking, this is frat boy right here. And then I looked, and there was other kind of furniture. There was an or, ornate lamp and a classic chair and I think a, a crystal music box. What <laughs> a clash. I don't know what they're doing today, but I'm pretty sure he gave up the posters as they tried to dwell, bring their lives together and inhabit this place because those decorations reflected themselves. And I think that's precisely the idea that Paul has when he says that the word of God is to dwell in you and it is to form you. It is to come and make himself at home and begin shaping the nature of your heart and your mind and the way you relate to each other. It's supposed to make you look like Christ. That's what the word is to do, to indwell and to begin to form us. That's, that's the idea. But there is in every church and in every believer, there is a war going on between what is going to shape and form us. We know, according to this verse, it should be the word dwelling and living in us. But there is this opposite that exerts influence to shape our thinking and our way of doing life, and that is the world. We all come in here with baggage as to how we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to value. And the real question for all of us is what will be formative? What will determine what we think of the world, what we think of human life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life? The beginning of life, the end of life, the afterlife, who is God, why are we here? All of those are questions that the word should form in us. 
So we come in to a church, and oftentimes we don't even know what our values are, but we're easily informed by our culture, not so much by the word. So one of the values of our culture that we see, for example, that we oftentimes intruding into the church, is the elevation of the value of the environment equal to or more than human life. Everybody's going green. Not a lot of people going human. Now, God is concerned about the environment and the trees and the rivers, as should Christians. But not as more important than that which is created in his image. So the question is, what forms what we think and our view of the world? Is it the world or is it the word? Not unlike my friends from seminary who are clashing. Frat boy meets Stepford wife. What's going to be formative in this church and in this family? Will it be the culture or will it be the word dwelling in us? And I should say that the temptation for Christians is to form the word to their thinking. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Is the word is supposed to form us to its values and its thinking. The way a foot will form and mold and shape a leather shoe. And you buy a leather shoe, a pair of leather shoes at the store, you put your foot in them, you love the way they look, but they're tight and they don't, don't feel so great. But you walk in them for like 20, 30 miles, and pretty soon that leather will conform to the shape of your feet and it will be comfortable. And that's what the word is to do in the church. It is, it is to form our thoughts, our way of doing life, our way of relating to each other, the way of thinking about each other, the way we worship, The way we do work, the way we do career, it is to form every aspect of life. That's, I think, what he means when he says, let the word of God dwell in you, live in you, and form you. Let him throw the paint on the walls and and put up the pictures of divine beauty and set the furniture of divine joy and love and peace. Speaking metaphorically, of course. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. But notice it is the word of Christ. That is, Christ becomes the subject of the word, the focal point of the word, and the theological and experiential center of the word. That what we're talking about in terms of the word dwelling in the church or indwelling the church is not just an understanding of dislocated and disjointed scriptures that have no cohesive center. But the cohesive center of all those verses and chapters, should be one thing. That's Christ. And that's true not only of the New Testament, which explains both in terms of history and commentary who Jesus was, but the Old Testament that anticipated him. And the reason I include that is because later in the verse he talks about psalms, singing psalms, which would take us to the psalms of the Old Testament. In other words, it's all the word of Christ, provided we understand that he is the centerpiece of it. And as he arises as the centerpiece of the word, this thing we have in our hands, then we are to fill the body, the church, the family with his word centered in Christ. And we're to do so richly. Which means it is not just to play a little tiny part in the life of the church, but it is to dwell in a way that saturates our meetings, our conversations, and so forth. 
so that it is full. It is all-inclusive. It's living and breathing in us. It's, it's like a heart pumping blood to every cell in the body. That's the word, living and pumping and carrying nutrients to the rest of the body. That's how it's to be in the church. It is to dwell. The word of Christ is to dwell richly. And that, by the way, does not fit the one-minute devotional Bible. I can't even brush my teeth in one minute. But to take the word and have it indwell my life, and not just in a way that takes up space up here, but in a way that lives and then lives in here, that is to be one of the core DNAs of the church. And one of the things that you should find, should find, in every church that calls itself Christian is that it loves God's Word and it wants to conform itself to God's Word and it wants the Word to live richly so that Christ can be exalted. Forever, if we're going to be a strong and we are going to be a growing and a church that impacts the community, not to mention impacts our own lives, it will require of us to have this commitment to let the Word of Christ dwell in our midst, richly, saturate us. And the question is, how? The first question was, what is the church to do with the word? Well, we are to let it dwell. Word of Christ dwell richly, but how? Well, that's the second part of the verse. You notice he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as, and he's going to list three things, as you teach, And admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. According to this, there are varied ways in which the Word of Christ indwells a church or a family. And he lists them out. I don't think this is exhaustive, but it certainly hits three major areas. That it is to indwell the church through teaching, through admonition, and through singing. Teaching has to do with telling people what to believe. Admonition deals with the application of what you believe, specifically exhortation, warning, and so forth, as directive. And then singing has to do with the celebration of what we believe. Those are three different modes of word communication and ways in which the word can and should dwell and live in a church body. Teaching, which addresses the mind. Admonishing, which addresses the will. And singing, which expresses the heart. Mind, will, and heart. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. So it fills the church in all of these different ways. And you'll notice that there are more than just there is more than just one way that the word is in the church. We tend to think that it's just the sermon that's the word in the church. Now it may play an important part, but according to Paul, it's to be much wider and broader than that. It includes the songs we just sang that are full of scripture, as well as the admonishings that go on between people. So when people will come to church and say, hey, I was 30 minutes late, but that doesn't really make a difference because I'm only here for the word. I say, well, you missed half of it. 
because it inhabits our singing. It's not just the preached word, which is an important part of it, but it's actually letting it sing in our voices together. We're celebrating the word of Christ as we sing. So it's to be a part of everything we do, even in the prayers that we pray. There should be this indwelling of the words of, of Christ coming out, maybe not verbatim, in our own paraphrases or, or the theological content of the Bible, coming out in our own words as we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Or as we pray, Lord, will you help me to release control of this particular situation because I know that you've established your throne in the heavens and you rule over all. Those are the words of God dwelling in his people and in our hearts, coming out in all kinds of different ways. It's to be in our prayers, in our singing admonishing and so forth. And you also notice, not only is it to fill the church in different ways, but who's responsible for this word dwelling in the church richly? It's, it's everybody. It is a communal responsibility. You see right here when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish. The important words here are one another. This is what all of us are supposed to be doing. The pastor is not the only one responsible for bringing the word. But each of us is to have a commitment to allowing this word to live in our midst. It should be the buzz and the chatter that goes on inside this room, out in the foyer, at Starbucks or on the telephone. It's constantly seasoned with the word of Christ. I think that's what it means to let it dwell in us. And everyone is responsible for it. For letting it live. Using your own words. Or quoting it verbatim. To let the word of God dwell in this place. Your conversations with your wife. And not to just give in to the default, which is the comfortable place of talking about the fact that you were able to tune your Holly carburetor last week. Or your lawnmower went out. Or who just won the game. But to make sure that the word of Christ dwells in us. And it is a communal responsibility that we allow it to dwell and inhabit this place and this family. And our conversations. And our relationships. This last Wednesday, I was deeply encouraged by our prayer night because one of the things we felt led to do was, was uh, have an open mic time where people were able to share what Christ is doing in their lives. And people gave testimony. I mean, part, I think, of the word of Christ spilling out has to do with what Christ is currently doing in our lives in bringing his word to bear upon the souls of people. And, and to hear guys like Dan Mundy say, you know, and one of the words he used was my Savior. He said, I'm just grateful that God, my Savior, spared my life when I plowed into a tree on the slopes of the Sierras and how he cared for me in the trauma unit. Or hearing Linda talk about the fact that she had come to a new place of awakening in her life as a result of being part of a new member small group. I was just like, oh, I want more of that. And hearing testimony and witness to what Christ is doing as well as what he has done. Those kinds of things should fill our conversations. 
because they revive and renew in us a sense and a thirst and a hunger for, hey, did that in your life? I want to pray that he does that in my life. It should inhabit and indwell our whole family in varied ways, in our singing as well as our personal conversation, as well as the preaching and so forth. And where the word of God dwells in the church We're relishing it, we're praying over it, we're praying it, we're thinking it, we're conversing about it, we're teaching it. I think the church has something to say to the community. And we'll find the Lord and the Spirit and Christ filling His church with power. But where the the Word in all of its various forms is either missing or neglected. I think the church ends up becoming a bit of a a jellyfish, like a human body without bones. That is the substance of what we have to offer the world as well as the substance of what we have to offer believers is found in His Word, which centers on Christ and is carried into the heart and into the family by the Holy Spirit. DNA 1, 2, and 3. You notice they're all interrelated and interdependent. You won't have much of Christ where there's not a lot of Word. And the word will not be powerful where there's not a lot of spirit. That this is part of the DNA of the church and something that all of us are responsible for taking and holding on to, both in our own lives as well as in our church. So that we value what this says. And we want it to live in us, in our minds, in our hearts, our relationship, and our worship. That's what we want and that's what we desire because it's important to God, it's important to Christ, it's important to us. And any approach to spirituality or spiritual formation that does not root itself in the text of Scripture itself is fundamentally flawed and off-center. Go do all the solitude you want, cross your legs, put your fingers in the shape of an O and hum. All you want, if it is not firmly rooted and centered in the text of God's Word, then it is misplaced. Now, I know that sounds, in one sense, probably a little bit generic. Here's my heart. I would like every believer in this place to feel a desperate need for the word each day. For me, when I hear a brother say, I just, I spend a lot of time praying, but not a really any time in the word. In fact, I hardly ever open it. I I am sad for what you're missing. Because my soul could not worship the Lord each day if I didn't have texts of scripture to hang on to. My heart, and I think this is true of every soul, is more fragile than we'll ever know. I feel sometimes like my heart is a bit of a hummingbird. Wings flapping a thousand beats per second or whatever they flap. Without the word, we're easily worried and anxious, try to take control of things, angry, worried about the future. But then to stop and to remember Psalm 95 Your dominion is an everlasting dominion. And I pray over it and I say, your 
dominion is an everlasting dominion and that Christ rules over this crisis, my heart, like that hummingbird, comes to rest. And so can yours. It can live in you, and it can be that rock upon which you find your center and your security and your ability to stop and say, okay, it's yours. That's what I desire for you on a personal level. It is and has been the words and texts and promises of the Bible that have enabled people for the last 4,000 years to endure any and all circumstances. That was brought powerfully home to me in Psalm 130 where the psalmist is in a dark place because of his sin. And he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. And the depths, the dark place he's in, I think is because of his sin. Because he later says, if you, O Lord, should mark sin, who could stand? So he's in a dark place wrestling with his own depravity. And what does he do when he says that my soul awaits? I wait for the Lord. This is what he does, and this is what sustains him in his dark time. He says, and in your word I hope. As if in the darkness there is a word that he's holding on to, and the word is revealed later in the psalm, is that the Lord will, future tense, the Lord will redeem Israel from all his sins. It's holding on to a text of Scripture. That's what the person in the dark place is doing. And all that each of us would just see how important it is, not just on a theological, abstract, doctrinal level, but in a personal, soul level. It is that solid oak branch, these promises and words of Scripture connected to Jesus, brought home by the Spirit, it is this upon which we stand. I just want you to experience the life-giving strength and power, the peace-producing strength of the Word of God in your soul, and then to begin to share it with others, and we will see, we'll see the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in our singing, in our teaching, and in our warnings and our admonishings. The Word of God is to be central in the life of the church. And I hope it will continue to be in the life of this church and it will grow so that every person here will say, you know what, that's what I need. I'm not going to guilt you into reading your Bible. I hope you want it because it's real and it will save you and it will sustain you. So with that said, let me ask you to do something that may come across as a bit corny. I hope not and contrived. One of the things we're trying to do is break habits in our congregation, like being uncomfortable with praying together. Another one is speaking truth to each other. It's going to be easy for you, once John says you're dismissed, to go out and talk about the carburetors and golf games and Mother's Day, champagne, brunch, whatever you're going to do. It's a harder thing, more uncomfortable thing to just remember, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to open up and talk about Christ. So, if you're willing, and if you're not willing, just raise your hand and say, I'm not interested. I just want you in the next couple of minutes to turn to the person next to you, just one person, and I want you to speak a word to them. Some of you can do it based upon something you've learned, a text of Scripture, an experience this last week, and you say, this is what the Lord taught me. If you don't, and you haven't been in the Word, let me encourage you to just turn to the next person, that person, and 
and say two things. One, look at them, and as sincerely as possible, don't make it an act. Just look at them and say, you know what? Jesus rules over the entirety of your life. That's true, and it's biblical. So turn and say, Jesus rules over the entirety of your life, and then say, and his love is sufficient for every need. Those two things. He rules, and his love is sufficient. So I know it's a little uncomfortable. You can look at your wife. You can say what you want to say. If you want to say more, by all means, tell a sermon. But just, even if you don't know what to say, you can say, Jesus rules over the affairs of your life, and his love is sufficient for you. So let's just spend a couple of moments just speak truth to each other in this little exercise to prime the pump as to what we should be doing every week, and then I'm going to pray. So 30, 40 seconds, let it go. Don't look at me. Look at each other.